Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffer, New Hampshire. Our new series is focusing on the book of Titus. If you were building a church from square one, what would you make sure to include into the architectural schematics and blueprints? Titus aims to examine the framework and the core beliefs that make up a good church. Jesus has laid out instructions for us to follow, and according to Paul's letter to a young pastor, Titus, the Christian church should always include humble leadership, sound doctrine, godly living, all sourced from the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus. So join us as we dive into examining what makes up a Christ-centered church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Turn to Titus 2, verse 1. Today's message is really blueprints of a church family. Uh, as Dan and Amy, they, they do a lot of building with blueprints and everything. We're going to be looking at that same kind of concept here, building the church. What is the foundation of the church, how we build it up, put the roof on, and who lives in that church? This is really just part two of last week's message. Uh, last week's message is, was in chapter 2, so I'll read chapter 2 again, and, and essentially we're going to be picking up right where we left off. So if you didn't get to hear last week, I think you'll pick up, you'll get what's going on this week, but you can check it out online and listen to that as well, as this is a part 2 of, of, of last week's. Titus 2.1 says, but as for you, teach what, is, what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Remember, we walked through all the different cross-sections of the church, of the people that live within this church. So it starts with older men, and here verse 3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything, and this is where we closed last week, this sense of in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That in everything we do, we adorn the doctrine of God. Verse 11 is this gospel foundation which everything is sourced from. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, and here's kind of this key verse for today, verse 12, training us. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And again, that verse 12, thinking about ourselves, that verse 12, that we are training ourselves to renounce ungodliness, to be different in our lifestyles, so to say no to worldly passions and rather to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Speaking to that time period and speaking to our time period here as well in 2023. A few months ago, I, now it is, I think my wife and I, we were able to go on a little marriage retreat down to Rhode Island. I can't remember if I shared some of this with you, 
um, but we were able to visit Newport, Rhode Island. I don't know if you've been there, um, but it's a, I don't know how the English would say it, it's, it's posh, right, <laughs> is the word. Um, it's uh, a little fancy-dancy, uh, and it's these uh, beautiful, uh, massive mansions along uh, the, I think it's called the Sea Walk or the, the Cliff Walk there. It's a beautiful place to travel and visit. You can see these massive mansions, uh, and by mansions I mean humongous, some of the largest, most beautiful, ornate mansions that have been built right there on the water, some built like right into these, these massive rock outcroppings there right along the ocean there in Rhode Island. Extraordinary, extravagant um, mansions that you can now tour. Many of them function as museums. But many of them were built in a time period um, where names like the Vanderbilts and so many others had such uh, massive, opulent amounts of wealth that they didn't know <laughs> where to spend it. And they built multiple homes like this, trying to rival the places of Paris and Versailles and copy much of the European, uh, Italian basilicas, these massive, ornate, uh, like Michelangelo kinds of ceilings with gold gilded and uh, everything. Everywhere you looked was glittering in gold. Um, and, and so when, we, when you visit, you, you just kind of are blown away. One, one of the ones we went to is called the Breakers. I can't even remember how many bedrooms it had, how many servants it took to run the place, just for one family to visit one month out of the year. <laughs> and it's extraordinary wealth, insane amount of wealth. Hard to imagine. This is taking place late, late 1800s, early 1900s when these are built. And uh, really that, that time period, Mark Twain was a, was a critic of the age, and he spoke of that time period around that with many of these mansions that was called the Gilded Age, kind of the Golden Age versus uh, the Gilded Age in the sense where everything glittered with gold, and yet what was underneath it was rust. <laughs> there was this shiny exterior, opulent wealth, outward happiness and success, and yet underneath it all was decay. It was a thin layer of gold, you could say a facade, but the inside was breaking down, was a people who were unhappy, chasing more and more success, seeking to live in ways that didn't match the beauty of what they presented to you on the outside. And many of us are familiar with this kind of lifestyle or a social media, Instagram kind of life that looks perfect all the time because that's all that we present to you on the outside. But inwardly, it is different as the Bible or Jesus would critique the Pharisees outwardly, a nice whited marble and yet inwardly a sepulcher full of bones, right? And so I would say many critics of the church often would say the same thing about us, that in our lives we present to us that we have everything together, we have everything put together, and yet inwardly, or maybe how we actually live out what it is we believe, don't match up. We tend to get accused of being a hypocritical group of people. And yet I, I find that this is something that we see working itself out here in Titus as he Paul is speaking to Titus that as a, at a good foundation of a church is built in such a way where we have a people who are living out, as just was spoken out, these, this aspect of our good works. We are living out what we believe. They begin to match up. A people who are renouncing the old man and ungodliness and worldliness and worldly passions and choosing through the Spirit to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present age. We live in our Christian identity who we are because what Christ has done. 
And we are living out that identity through our lifestyle and our actions and our godly lives. That is how we should live in light of what Christ has done. So last week, we looked at the blueprint that I was kind of helped me think through. If we could bring that up, the blueprint of what that kind of healthy church looks like. And really, in a sense, this was something that helped us think through visually uh, some of the concepts that are going on in Titus that come up again largely in Titus, part one of Titus and part of chapter two and part two of chapter two. This gospel foundation that is so crucial, our faith and our belief, what it is that we preach sound doctrine, being vital, and yet connecting that through the Holy Spirit and the power of sanctification and the process of growing in Him. And then working that out in our good works and our godly lifestyles, or as the word would say, in your holy living, holiness, words that don't often uh, get us very excited, you know, this godliness. And yet we have to recognize that these things have to be balanced when one dominates the other or pushes out one room or seals it off in the mansion, you have an imbalance, And so what's important is that these rooms are together in what we would call the house of the church or the real daily lifestyle of a Christian, gospel-empowered living. And so ultimately, this is the backdrop for then saying, well, who's going to live in this house? Well, the people that are seeking to live out what this house floor plan is, the church of God, the people of God, you. And so Paul then addresses you people, well, then if you're going to live in the house together, how is it that you're supposed to operate and work? Well, chapter one talks about elders and how it is that they are to lead and pastor a flock. Well, who are the flock? Well, chapter two says older men, be pillars of the church, foundational. Older women, be mentors. Seek to share with the younger women on how they can support. Young women, be supporters in many of these things. And younger men, I get to harp on you today as I get to harp on myself as well in that, okay? I find myself, uh, again, we talked last week, age you know, depends on who you are and where, who you're relating to, okay? And, and who are, what category you fall into, older or younger. So let's look at uh, verse five here, uh, down to verse six. It, it goes right into verse six, where likewise urge the younger men. So we talked again a lot from older women training, younger women last week, today, younger men, and ultimately Titus. So what I've done is circled self-control. For young men, they know you can't handle a lot of things. So it just says, here's, uh, let's just keep it simple. Um, uh, Paul speaking to Titus says, look, young men, be self-controlled. And that's really the only thing he speaks generally to all young men. He just says, be self-controlled. And then he speaks these things to Titus as a young man. All of the other things, Titus was a young man, a, a, an elder and a pastor in the church. Uh, I could, you could say kind of like myself, I find myself uh, gravitating toward this section as well. But I think every young man ought to be seeking to meet these other characteristics of a young man who is aspiring to the office of an elder. And the word would say you aspire and, and desire a good thing. So really in a sense, I want to speak into this concept of young men, or as in my mind, a young man, seeing them as athletes was the word picture that struck in my mind. I think that's a very biblical depiction. Uh, Many people are gifted with athletic talent and such, uh, but an athlete or the great, the elite athletes are not those who are just gifted with elite talent, but those who have self-discipline in order to um, expand that talent into what we would say they are an athlete 
the, the famous, um, the Michael Jordans of the world, the Kobe Bryants, the Lionel Messi's of the world. These, these people are physically gifted, and yet they have lived an entire life and an entire lifestyle of self-discipline and self-control in order to expand that athletic talent to become elite and to become the best at what God has called them to do, or whatever that might be, their sport, or whatever God's made you to do in your life. It, is take, it takes a, a literal lifestyle of that. 1 Corinthians 9, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. Paul says here in the NLT, so I run with purpose in every step. I am not shadow boxing, but I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Not only what he says with his mouth, but also how he lives it out and how he works it out in his body and with his lifestyle. That those things must match up so he is not disqualified from the ministry. And so this concept of self-control, we know that this has come up multiple times. In fact, it's used, I think, four times in chapter 2. Almost every category of people within the church are called and asked to be self-controlled. Other words are used, things like sober-minded. This concept of self-control, though, carries not just uh, specifically regarding the entire body, although that is part of it. it this word self-control, if you look at its roots, it was really speaking about controlling your mind, to be in a right sense of mind. There's that demonic story in Jesus when Jesus heals the man who has been filled with demons. He was cutting himself and naked and, right and all over the place and just crazy. Jesus cast the demons out. And then the word, I believe it says, he, he is sitting in the presence of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. He is now in his right mind. He is now operating in a sense of control. Setting your mind on the things of God that allows the things of God to be what it is controls our bodies. Therefore, we employ in our life and in our lifestyles a set of practices and disciplines and habits to set our mind on the spirit and not on the flesh. And I'd say there is some real wisdom here, especially for young men, as Paul is speaking to Titus as a young man, but specifically to all of us as young men, specifically today, that it, as you are young, choosing to employ into your life a certain aspect of self-discipline that many would say has a, you could say a financial illustration, would have a sense of compounding interest over time. That if as a young man you are willing to put the discipline of setting your mind on the things of God and through his spirit, it has a, a, an act, a way of compounding interest over time. That starting late in the game, I imagine many of you saying, wow, I wish I had done that when I was young. Starting now is the time that counts. It is so important. John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies, that the solution to our flesh control over us isn't just to buck up and try harder, but rather to rely on the Spirit. And Paul went on to say that we live according to the Spirit through the simple act of setting our minds on God. Romans 8 says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on the Spirit's desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, 
And the mind governed by the Spirit is life. It's often as simple as that. Small, regular habits, practices, disciplines that open up our mind to the Spirit and close them off and weaken the flesh. It often can be as simple as that. For for maturity in a young man and anyone who is young, I know in some ways I'm speaking generally, but also to us as men, but specifically here this aspect of transitioning from a child to a man or a young adult to an adult. The, the often the, the transition from a child to a to a young um, to a a young man and then to an adult is is really to mature regarding the degree of separation between the two is is found in the capacity to say no. But ultimately, as a young toddler, if you've if you're around my son Judson very long, you're going to find out he has trouble saying no to anything, right? And anyone telling him no, right? And so as you grow up, you learn to be able to say no. Because you have harnessed a certain level of self-control over your desires and over your flesh to say no to that donut, okay? Or to say no to that website that you're tempted to go to. Or to say no to that person that you're angry at and, and want to, to respond in, bitter, uh, in anger towards. There are many levels of this, and yet at its base level is the ability to say no And yet, how is it that you say no? You just try harder and next time we'll get you. Well, this aspect of truly setting our mind on things of God so we are training not only our mind, but our mind controls our body, which then allows us to operate in in a way of control because the fruit of the Spirit, the last one mentioned in that list in Galatians, is self-control. The fruit of the Spirit of self-control. It is one who is learning to harness the power and strength that comes with youth, the energy and the excitement that God has endowed within young men, and that ability to conquer and go and explore and build and do in great and extraordinary ways with a great capacity for many things, and yet also a great capacity for a lot of harm and damage that can be brought under self-control and can be a, a wonderful capacity for a lot of good instead. It's kind of like a, a wild bucking bronco. <laughs> it's a, one of those rodeos that you've ever seen with this powerful creature seeking to remain unbroken. No one will control me and yet the damage that it causes and yet when it is broken, you could say as a, as a man, as when we are allowing ourselves to be broken by God, we have broken that old man, we have crucified the flesh through the spirit, it is by mortifying that sin that we now live under control of a new master. We live on someone who can ride upon us and use the power and strength that God's given to young men to be actually harnessed for his good and for the use and the blessing of others who, who come around us. And so it's that maturing, it's that, that bronco being brought under the bridle, the maturing of a child to a young man living into self-control by the Spirit of God. And much of this happens through discipline, a word that, again, isn't one of those words that we, we think, oh, that's exciting, you know, this godliness, this holiness, this discipline. Yet disciplining ourselves, especially when we're young, allows us to live a life of honor and service for God. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. This is Paul speaking to Timothy here in Timothy, not necessarily here to Titus, but in the same concept in these pastoral epistles. Having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, like stop paying attention to all the foolishness around you. 
As young men, we often get drawn into those kinds of things. It says, rather, be different. What does he say by that? Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise to the present life and the life that is to come. Hey, bodily training's great. Going running physically in your strength, in your youth, that's a wonderful thing. And yet it is limited in its value. Godliness, however, has unlimited value. <laughs> Train yourself not only to be physically capable in whatever discipline you're choosing as an athlete, but to rather train yourself spiritually. Just like you would train to run for a marathon, are you training your mind to be able to understand the things of God so that you can be able to teach and mentor others with your life? Are you beating back your body into submission as, as Paul would describe through the disciplines of word, the study of the word and prayer, preaching of the word coming into your life, the study of it, the fasting, the solitude, many of these things, training ourselves for godliness. 2 Timothy 4.11 says, command and teach these things, speaking to Timothy, but let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example an example in your speech and in your conduct, in your love and in your faith and in your purity. And then I love the way Paul describes this. As he says, look, practice these things. This is a lifetime that you're headed out onto. This is a voyage you are setting sea as a, in your youth. But this is a voyage in which you aim to land on the shore that you arrive at one day. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, he says in 2 Timothy 4 so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. And then again, that 1 Corinthians 9 passage where he talks about running the race, running it, and many people run that race in order to receive a crown that is perishable. What we do it for a crown imperishable. I don't run aimlessly or I don't shadow box this idea, but I fight like I'm, like I'm beating the air like that. No, no, no. I, I discipline my body and I make it my slave, he says, so that after I have preached to others, I might myself not be disqualified. And so self-control Key for every single person in here, but especially as Paul harnesses that and focuses it on young men. And then really, largely, as we see this working itself out in young men who are called into the ministry, verse 7, hey, you yourself, Titus, and many of you others, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, live with dignity. Hey, sound speech, that it can't be condemned, so that if someone comes against you, so when someone comes against you that you are living and speaking so that opponents don't have anything bad to say about you. Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine that no one has anything bad to say about you. And this is so important. Paul's speaking to Titus as a young man, a young man who is stepping into the pastorate. Let your life model what it is you're preaching. I saw an article recently uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, this article was highlighting some of the statistics that have come in, and the title of the article was, was talking about the disappearance of young pastors. It was rather sobering for me, as I just turned 35, and I'm thinking about myself as in New England, especially, as this is probably, uh, is probably exasperated here in New England. But the article said, we are witnessing the disappearance of the 30-something and 40-something pastor. The age of a pastor has increased significantly over the past several years. The U.S. pastor median age, the median age of a pastor in 1992 was 44 years old. Now in 2021 was when this was taken. 
the average median pa- uh, age of a Christian pastor is 57 years old, 44 to 57. Again, nothing wrong with older men. The idea here is the concept of who is passing that baton and who will carry it on for the future. So he said the typical pastor today is approaching retirement age. Frankly, there are not enough younger pastors to replace that large group of retiring baby boomer pastors, according to statistics. Young men, how are we, in some ways, stepping into that next step, right? And I'm speaking to maybe some of you, because I sat, just like many of you, in places like this, wondering, is, is that what God's calling me to do one day? I didn't always know I was going to be a pastor. I didn't always know I was going to be here, for sure. I never imagined some of the things that God's led me to do. And yet as a, as a teenager and headed into college and some of these times when I felt the tug and the pull of, of God upon my heart in these things, it, it has to, in many ways, up to us. Not only the older men passing that baton on to the younger, but the younger men willing to accept it, to take it, to choose a life of ministry and service of others, living a life that shows integrity and dignity, living and speaking in a way that opponents have nothing bad to say about us. Is that something that we can say? If you were to run for a political office today, I, again, in today's culture, I'm not sure why anyone would, right? But if you were to run for the President of the United States, what would the attack ads be on you, right? What would they drum up in your past to say, this person, la, 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 and all this stuff? Or would they have to fabricate things, right? What is it that others would say bad about you? David would say, I walk in mine integrity, walk in integrity. And then this last group of young men and young pastors and young servants of God, here it then moves into verse 9, bond servants. Challenging word for us in our culture today. This word doulos can be used and translated as bond servant or servant or slave. Or even others as deacons are called to serve and to do this as a slave to serve as that's what they do. This idea of bond servants. It's challenging for us because his bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. And, we're, and the challenge for us comes up is the Bible uh, supporting slavery. And this has come up several different times in the past. We've covered this here at Hope when we went into Colossians and other series that talk about this. But we have to recognize in the, in the early culture there at that time, the, the, the slavery or the bond servant aspect of the economic structure during that day was not the same as we think of slavery here in the South or in America, the chattel, the chattel slavery of race-based slavery, of, of taking people, stealing them and kidnapping them from West Africa and bringing them here to America, forcing them into slavery, and then forcing their children and their children's children into slavery. This is not even what the scripture is talking about. This is very contrary to what even existed during that time of Jesus' day in the early church. This aspect of bond servant. There's many things I could say on this, even in the past and history of men like William Wilberforce and a variety of others, even in our own country, whose Christian principles led to the actual abolishment of slavery. And we act today as if slavery doesn't exist, and yet it does. All over the world, many nations and many cultures outside the U.S., we like to blame it only on one race or whatnot, but the aspect of slavery is still something that exists around the world today in horrific, terrible ways. And here when we see this, we recognize that Jesus came, he comes not necessarily to overthrow the Roman Empire, 
not to necessarily provide complete government overthrow and become a king on that Roman or Greek throne, whatever nation is in control, but rather to lead a spiritual revolution that, that can reach anyone in any place, whether they are slave or free, whether they are rich or poor, any person in any place in any way can be saved, can be redeemed, can live free. And that gospel message permeates a culture and changes the economic systems of that time as it did. Colossians 3.11, here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. There are neither barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's what we see here in Paul saying here, look, even if you find yourself, as many of the early churches did, they would find slave and master attending the same home church there in the early church. And so as they were to come together, the book of Philemon speaks about this in a variety of places, but he's telling them, even as a bondservant, as you repay your debts to the people that you owe, as you live with them and serve them in whatever capacity that is, be submissive to them. Be well-pleasing. Don't be argumentative in everything. Don't be pilfering and a thief, but rather live trustworthy, showing good faith to them. And so in many ways, we could say for ourselves as in our positions as boss or employee, how is it that we're operating in our job and on the job site? Would we say that somebody in our lifestyle knows that, well, that guy's a Christian. He goes to church, and there's something different about him. He works in such a way where he is submissive to his boss. He is well-pleasing to them. He is not argumentative about everything, but rather he is not a thief, but is someone who is trustworthy, trustworthy, someone who can be trusted with their time and with whatever there is on the site or in the workplace. They're trustworthy. It is someone that seeks to live live out what they believe. And so ultimately, this kind of comes full circle to where we began. Well, we looked at the foundation of the church and how this all works together. And, and for me, it helped to think through that blueprints of a church, the people, older, younger, bond servants, working out their faith with their good works so that others may see the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are adorning with their lifestyle each and every day. And so it leads us to this final conclusion, this slide that for me helps bring it all to close. And as we think about our own church here at Hope Fellowship Church, how is it that we in all of the multi-generation is living together under one roof. And for me, this was helpful. As I was thinking through a good church family, what does that look like? Well, how would Titus describe a a good and healthy church, a, a good Christian, and how are they living those things out? There's ultimately a connection between right doctrine and truth. There's a connection between the Holy Spirit living within us and good works being worked out, or you could describe it in a variety of ways, our head and our heart and our hands working together, or as hope, we describe it in this way, to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to serve others. This way of describing a healthy church functioning together in this DNA. Head, heart, hands, know, grow, serve, this idea of doctrine and truth, the Holy Spirit and good works. And so you could say, a a good church culture, a church that I want to be a part of, is a church that describes not only the gospel message, but what is it that we're here to do in this life each and every day? We're to live a godly life. We're to live a holy life. We're to live a life that is distinct and different from the world. It's no, 
It's no, it's, unless you've been living under a rock, you, don't, you, you may not know that it's June, right? <laughs> Pride month. It's on everything and everywhere and in your face all the time. And we can say, well, the faith of Jesus Christ and God's word stands against that, and it does. And yet, how is it that we stand against that? How is it that we provide a vision for something better, an identity that's found in Christ, not what we say it to be? How is it that we can provide something better just by screaming in anger all the time at people who disagree with us or actually being a culture that is attractive in such a way that we present an image of something far greater than our world could ever craft or come up with? Rather, being something of a church culture that says, what are we here to do? We're to live a godly life. Why? Why, why do we live a godly life? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is it that we do that? Just try harder? Well, we do it through the Spirit of God. Rather, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people because of the grace is here now. What? We're training ourselves to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age of 2023, that we can do that as a church. We can be a place that is winsome, that a place that is attractive to others because there's older men and older women, young women, younger men, living together in a place where they love each other, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're working together. They're displaying the fruits of the Spirit in their lives because of the gospel motivation that begins it all. And that gospel motivation is found in this last verse that I want to close with, Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14 just has been sticking with me this week as it just so beautifully and succinctly describes the gospel message. And I love this, and next week we're going to get into the gospel because next week I hope you guys can make it out. I'm excited to get into it because next week we're going to look at literally how to share that gospel with other people because Titus chapter 3 lays out the Titus trail or the Romans road as I'd say, right? But Titus 2.14, ultimately Jesus, it says, gave himself for us. The grace of God has appeared. This is our motivation. This is why we're here today. This is how we are sourcing our good works from this message. It is coming from that Jesus came. He gave himself for us. For what? Why did he come? To redeem us, purchase us, bring us out of the slave market of sin, and to bring us into the kingdom of light, transferring us from the darkness and into the light. To redeem us from sin and lawlessness. He takes us from that now to purify for himself a people. We are being purified and cleansed. The renewal of the Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit comes within us, renews us over time each and every day to be more and more like Christ with progressive sanctification. Purifies us for himself. What? What are we to be? An individual by ourselves? No, a people. The word there is a group, a plural, a church for good works that we are zealous for these things, seeking to love others with our hands, sourced from the heart of the Spirit as we fill our minds with the knowledge of God. This is the motivation for your daily living, and this is the motivation and the foundation of the entire structure of the church. They work in cohesion. And I hope that helps us understand what it is we're doing here, that pastors and elders 
are to work together in this, older men and older women, younger women and younger men. And then in our boss and employee relationships where we find ourselves, we are to be living out the gospel wherever God calls us to go, wherever God calls us to be. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this truth. We ask, God, that you'd be glorified in our working out of this truth. Help us, God. Lord, it's so easy to leave here and not give a second thought about your word. Would you not let us leave without the conviction of the Spirit working in us, a desire to change, a desire to be what you are calling us to be? Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us this morning, the mission for the, for the globe, for the world, for orphans all over the area. Lord, we, we thank you for that. Give us that heart, both abroad and both at home. God, that you are a loving God. Your love extends to us this morning. The grace of God has appeared, training us. Let us now live out your love, the love that you chased after us with, with that love now go out to anyone in our lives. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, God, for your truth and your grace and your gospel message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.